So over the past few weeks, Andrew and Kyle have been teaching about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, Andrew, Kyle, and myself. But over the last few weeks, Kyle and Andrew have talked about the Trinity, but also moved into Pentecost. In Andrew's class, um, which was really helpful, which he taught a couple of weeks ago, he traced the storyline of the giving of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one thing that Andrew said that I think was, was helpful for me, and I think it's helpful for us to, to think about, to, to consider, to, to keep in mind, is the connection between Christ and Pentecost. There's a, there's a knitting together of, uh, of course, our triune God, um, um, but specifically the events of the cross of Christ and, and Pentecost. There are, they're, they're, they're tied together. The prophetic word of the Old Testament prepared us for a time, a person, an event, the person work of Christ, and even how that, that event would uh, inform, infect, uh, redeem uh, the elect to effect salvation in them. But connected to that prophetic word was another event that started in Numbers 11, was picked up and sort of formally prophesied in Joel 2, and that was fulfilled in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Just like Christ offering himself on the cross as a payment for sin, just like that was a one-time non-repeatable event, Pentecost did not need to be a repeatable event. Now granted, Pentecost changed things forever, but the effects of Pentecost and the Pentecost event itself are not the same thing. All right, so we have to keep that, that distinction in mind. Pentecost was, was unique, and we'll talk about why it was unique and why it was a non-repeatable event this morning. So again, this week we'll look at Pentecost from uh, a really a post-Pentecost angle. Christ's work and redemption has different focal points. If you uh, sort of hold up the, the jewel of, or the diamond of Christ's person and work, if you turn it and look at it from different angles, you see the resurrection, you see the ascension, you see the virgin birth, you see the miracles, and all those different angles of that diamond make up the full, complete jewel of the work of Christ. Uh, something similar uh, you can see in the work of the Holy Spirit. If you hold it up, uh, from different angles, you can see the, the work of the Spirit, the effects of the Spirit in the New Testament church and even the Old Testament uh, people. Uh, but his complete work is made up in the, the jewel of what the Spirit does. So Pentecost is sort of one side of the diamond of the work of the Holy Spirit, which we'll, we'll look at again today. So with the help of Sinclair Ferguson, we're, we're using Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit as a sort of guide that with other resources um, as we think about the personal work of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, we're going to consider three questions. Now, I wasn't here last, last week, of course. Kyle, Kyle taught on the, the Trinity. So I'm trying to squeeze two classes into one, and that's never a good idea because you never cover everything. But I think what I'm covering this morning are the essential aspects of um, this category of the Pentecost. So that's what I wanna, I wanna look at. So first we're gonna look at what is the relation between Pentecost and the disciples' early experiences of the Spirit. Two, we're gonna consider 
What is the relation between Pentecost and the experiences of the spirit recorded in the book of Acts? And then we're going to third think about should we expect a new Pentecost today? Should we expect what happened in Acts 2 to be something that has happened throughout this age and different times and even today? Okay. so first on your handout, Pentecost and the disciples. Before Pentecost happened, we know that the disciples were genuine believers. John 15, 1 to 11 says that they were attached to the vine. Matthew 16, 15 to 20 says that they believed that he was the Christ. We've also assumed that they believe because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. All right. So we're not denying that when we consider Pentecost here. They were believers. At the same time, Acts 1, 5 says that they didn't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit yet. Now, this is interesting. At this point, we want to consider two questions under this first category. Is the experience of the disciples something that we should expect to be a pattern for the New Testament church? What about their experience is shared by all believers? And what about their experience will not be shared by every true believer? Right. What what continuity do we see in their experience and ours and what discontinuity is there between their experience and ours? Uh, The first, uh, maybe more obvious um, discontinuity, uh, the first primary or obvious reason that their experience won't be like ours is because the disciples lived during a time where the spirit was at work. And there was a movement, uh, transition, for lack of better terms, from the old covenant to the new covenant. Uh, The old um, sort of dispensation, and I mean that in a uh, Christological, reformed, (laughs) theological way. (laughs) The old dispensation to the new dispensation, okay? Their lives and their experiences is set in a time where the Holy Spirit is now operating in a different way and doing something new. It's the same spirit, so there is continuity, but Pentecost is meant to be unique, so there is also discontinuity. Only at Pentecost does the spirit come in the capacity and the ministry as the spirit of the exalted Christ. Now, uh, Andrew taught on this a few weeks ago, which was really, really helpful, um, seeing the work of the spirit in connection to the New Testament church as the spirit of the exalted Christ. Um, distinct. The disciples have this unique experience where they have one foot in the old and one foot in the new. No other generation of believers will have that experience. You, you see why, right? We weren't living at that time. We weren't during that, uh, living at that unique time where this transition was happening. So the first obvious reason that there's discontinuity is because we're not the disciples. We weren't living during that time. Okay. Now let's consider Caesarea, Samaria, and Ephesus. I'll explain what I mean by that. First, any questions on that and what I just shared? Is that clear? Does it it make sense? Yeah. Okay. Now let's look at a few passages in Acts and try to make sense of some events that we see there. 
events that can be uh, on the surface confusing. Uh, they were confusing for me when I, when I first read these things, and I'll sort of talk about my own um, background, but they were confusing for me when I first read some of these passages, but we're gonna read them together. Now, um, Acts records events that have led different um, evangelical um, denominations, or evangelical churches down different roads because of how they interpret these specific events in Acts. The first one is the Cornelius event, which we see in Acts 10, 44 to 48. So everybody turn to Acts 10 if you have your Bibles. We're going to read verses 44 to 48. Who wants to read those verses for us? Acts 10, 44 to 48. Yep. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, thank you. Now this event has three staples that should stand out to us in relation to Pentecost. There's tongues in verse 45, or rather there's the pouring out of the Spirit in verse 45, uh, there's tongues in verse 46, and there's baptism in verses 47 to 48. Peter sees this event as the gospel breaking into the Gentile nations, similar to the language you see connected to Pentecost. You see that in Acts 11:18. Now let's read another passage, Acts 8, 9 through 25. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. So just Turn back a couple pages to, to chapter 8. Who wants to read verses 9 through 25 for us? Tim, go for it. Thank you. Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, 
Thank you. Now, both in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 8, there seems to be this second giving of the Holy Spirit. Ferguson, in his book, said, In the case of the Samaritans and the Ephesians, there appears to be a distinct second stage to their experience of the Spirit. The Samaritans believed Philip, and he preached of the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and were baptized. But only when Peter and John came was prayer made for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name or into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 19, one to seven, Paul, he's passing through Ephesus and he found some disciples and asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we didn't even know, we hadn't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. That's Acts 19, um, 1 to 7. And he says, and it says, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, are these passages confusing, interesting to you? What's the first thing that comes to mind for you when you, maybe when you've read this in the past or when you read it now? What comes to mind for you? Okay. Yep. Yep. What else? Anything else come to mind? Trevon said it seems like when they receive the Holy Spirit, it, there's some extra sort of sign that's that's needed for that that sort of second reception. Right. <clears throat> Any other thoughts? Anything else come to mind? I think that's what I think too. That's what initially sort of comes to my mind. So I, I grew up, I think, in a, uh, well, I did, in an um, evangelical sort of church tradition that um, viewed this as a two-stage fulfilling of the Holy Spirit. So there was the, the fulfilling of the Holy Spirit at salvation. You believe you were filled with the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't deny that, that the Spirit is at work in the believer's heart. But then there was this second stage of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me know if this language sounds familiar to you. Uh, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Uh, is that something you, you've heard before? That's, uh, that's common in certain sort of church traditions, and I was in, in one of those. I was used to hearing that, that, that language, and man, the, the, the things that uh, my brother knows, he was there, my wife. <laughs> we all went to St. Barani. <laughs> we all went to the same church back in the day. The things that, I'll speak for myself here, the things that I would feel I needed to, to do to have that sort of second blessing of the filling of the Holy Spirit um, with this evidence of tongues that, that showed that I was, I did love the Lord. Like I, I did want a closer relationship with him. It was sort of casted in that way. But that's not how we should view and understand Pentecost or the filling of the Spirit or tongues. The apostles were regenerated. They were saved. We, we've already said that. At Pentecost, they experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in different languages, different tongues. Now, if they are models 
for the earliest believers in the New Testament church, then the thought is, shouldn't their experience be the goal of every true believer to sort of achieve or get to this experience of a second blessing? Shouldn't that be the pattern of, of the church? This happens to the apostles, but not only to them, but even after Pentecost, you see the same things happening to Cornelius, to the Ephesians and others at the start of the New Testament church. Doesn't that mean that the pattern or at least something um, is seen here in what the believers should try to attain to sort of a higher quality of their Christian walk? No. The answer is no. <laughs> Pentecost was a redemptive historical event. Because Pentecost is a fulfillment and uh, directly connected to the work of Christ and what he would continue to do after his ascension to the right hand of the Father, just like the cross, it was a non-repeatable one-time event. <clears throat> it was an event that promised uh, that was promised by Christ and it was to function at a specific time and a specific place within redemptive history. <clears throat> we shouldn't assume that this will be the experience of every true believer. We shouldn't hold it up to them and measure their Christian maturity by this unique experience that the apostles had in the early church. Um, it can, that, that can be and I'm talking to the wrong crowd. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but that can be manipulative. It can be abusive. It can wound the conscience of the Christian when we're looking at the wrong things and saying, well, this is the fruit that you ought to bear because we're misinterpreting scripture. Right? So our bad theology has consequences. <clears throat> Again, we shouldn't measure their Christian maturity by this. That, that's not why tongues were given. That's not why Pentecost happened. The baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in different tongues represented a new stage in what Jesus himself would continue to do through his disciples as they preached the gospel. Okay, so it's actually the continued work and the ministry of Christ by the Holy Spirit and the church. Now, if we were to look at this um, in, in stages, it'd be... Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth. There is a way to view this that I think is, is faithful to scripture, doesn't misinterpret what's, what's happening here, the events or the doctrine, and is faithful to, I think, what God is doing throughout redemptive history. Now, if we take um, Acts 1-8 as sort of the, um, the guideline for the stages of what's happening, Acts 1-8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses, and where? Jerusalem, and all of Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So Christ gives his disciples, the church, their mission, right? He, he lays it out for them. This is what's going to happen. Uh, before Pentecost, they're waiting for the Spirit to uh, descend, to come with this, this power. And it's the... Um, this, this command that Christ gives will be fulfilled in that. Now, keeping one, Acts 1-8 in mind, keeping that promise in mind, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the gospel comes to Jerusalem. In Acts 8, it's described as the gospel coming to Samaria through Philip's ministry. And if we were to view this again in stages, following Acts 1-8, stage 1 would be Jerusalem, 
Stage two would be Samaria. And stage three, the gospel comes to Caesarea, which is representative of the ends of the earth, all the nations, okay? The broader Gentile world. Does, does that make sense? Are you tracking with me so, so far? Okay, so we're using Acts 1-8 to interpret everything that's happening in Acts. We need to keep that, that context in mind. Jesus said, the spirit will come, something will happen, Jerusalem, Judea, ends of the earth, okay? <clears throat> now, Sinclair Ferguson points out in his book that Acts gives 66 verses to this gospel program. And Luke is in that emphasizing the importance of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. He's emphasizing the importance of this program to Caesarea, which shows us what Christ is continuing to do in the fulfillment of his promise. He says, uh, Ferguson says, it's more than merely a narrative of surprising conversions, but it's a paradigm of every age. Rather, it is a specific and strategic development in the entire mission program of Acts 1-8. <clears throat> it's interesting to see in Acts 19-1, <clears throat> although Luke refers to this group of men as some disciples, their understanding of Jesus was accurate, but it was limited. So they were taught Jesus accurately, but they only knew the baptism of John. And then Paul lays his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they start speaking in tongues. Ferguson explained it in this way. I'm going to say what he said, then I'm going to explain why I think he's right. <clears throat> he says, they were in transit from the era of expectation to that of fulfillment, from expectation to fulfillment. That's what's happening um, with the disciples, original apostles, and in the New Testament church here. The flow of Acts shows us <clears throat> that these events have to be interpreted in their own context. The events in Acts have a context within the book of Acts. The book of Acts has a context within the New Testament, the New Testament has a context within the canon of scripture, the context within God's redemptive plan. So we have to understand Acts within its context. <clears throat> the events of the day of Pentecost are the public expression of the hidden reality that Christ has been exalted as the Lord of glory. His messianic request for the spirit, which he made as mediator on our behalf, has been granted. Now, again, that's a quote from Ferguson, and I think that's right, but I want to use scripture to explain why I think that's right. He's saying that in the book of Acts, what's happening is the proclamation of Christ's rule, his exalted state, is being proclaimed now throughout the nations. So it's the continuing of that proclamation in Christ's earthly ministry. He's saying, I and the Father are one. He's quoting Old Testament prophecy about himself. He's reading Isaiah and saying, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's teaching them about who he is and how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And Acts, we see the proclamation of not just his humility, but his exaltation. That's what's going out in tongues and languages into the nations. They're saying, what God said is true. His promise is fulfilled. Christ is exalted. He is the Lord of glory. That's what's being proclaimed in the book of Acts. 
Now, turn to Psalm 110, 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. I'm going to read this and sort of break it down in sections and explain it in relation to Acts. So, actually, let me turn there. Psalm 110, 1. A Psalm of David. The word says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this passage is talking about Jesus when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and glory. The fulfillment of the promises made about Jesus' mission and the completion of his work, that's what's taking place in Acts. That's what's being proclaimed in Acts. The fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. The second part of Psalm 110.1, until I make your enemies your footstool, is being recorded for us in Acts. Jesus has completed his earthly ministry, and now he begins to complete his mission from heaven. In John 14.16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The request for the Spirit comes and will not be denied by the Father because Jesus has completed his earthly ministry and fulfilled the will of God by conquering and um, redeeming his elect to himself. The helper is sent as promised, the comforter, but his primary mission, this is important, the helper's primary mission is to work in the body of Christ, the true church, towards the completion of the redemption of all things through the gospel message that's preached concerning Christ's resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. So if you wonder why the helper is given, I mean, there's a a lot behind that. We can spend weeks on that. But concerning the book of Acts, if you wonder, well, why is the spirit given? Why is the spirit sent? The spirit was promised to be sent upon the son's fulfillment, second person of the Trinity, the completion of redemption, He prays, he says, I will ask the Father, the Father will send the Spirit, the Spirit comes and dwells the church, and the church proclaims the gospel to the nations. Now, I know when I say that, at least the question that comes up in my own mind is that, well, what's the difference between what they're doing, proclaiming the gospel to the nations, and what we do today, we're proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Can't the Spirit work in that same way? Shouldn't we expect a Pentecost-like event to happen in the same way? No. Primarily, and I'm not gonna get ahead of myself. I'm, I'm getting excited. I'll wait and then we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, Psalm 10, Psalm, Psalm 110. The connection between Acts 2 and Psalm 110 is, again, it's interesting, but it's, this is the flow of redemptive history. Even Acts is bringing us back to uh, what, Christ, what God has done in Christ and seating him at, at the right throne, at his right hand. The helper is sent as a comforter. The, the spirit is working in the church. 
to fulfill what we see in Psalm 110. Jesus, along with the Father, sent the Holy Spirit for this purpose, to proclaim his exalted state, to display the dominion of Christ after his resurrection and ascension, in which he is now seated and accomplishing the redemption of all things in his exalted state. So Acts records how Jesus' messianic mission continues to work by and through the Spirit. Now, when I say the Spirit's mission is tied to the work of Christ, I mean that the Spirit is doing what was prophesied about Christ, even in places like Psalm 2, 7 to 8. Well, let's turn to, to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. Who, who wants to read those verses for us? Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. Sure. Go for it, Will. Thank you. Psalm 2, 7 and 8. Psalm 2, 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have forgotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay. Now, what do you see in Psalm 2, 7 to 8 that sounds like or points to Acts 1, 8? What, what language do you see there? Uh, what, what do you see in Psalm 2 that reminds you of what we're talking about in the book of Acts? The ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. Yep, that's a primary thing. The ends of the earth. What else? Just before that. <laughs> he says, I will make the nations your heritage. Right? That same idea, ends of the earth. I will make the nations your heritage. Psalm or Acts 1.8. You will proclaim the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Right? And it's interesting that Psalm 2 again the Lord said, the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. The even ask of me, if we tie that to Acts or uh, Jesus asking of the father, the request for the spirit, the spirit working in the church, making the nations his heritage to the ends of the earth, the gospel going forth. There's, there's a connection there between Acts and Acts 1-8 in the book of Acts and Psalm 110 and even Psalm 2. So it's, it's, a, it's reading uh, scripture Christologically, reading scripture with Christ in mind. Um, Christ and his person and work is the fulfillment of scripture and even the spirit as he works in the church. <laughs> How do the nations become Christ's heritage and the ends of the earth his possession? Again, that's what's recorded for us in the book of Acts. That, that happening is what we see in the book of Acts. We can't get so distracted by the rabbit trail connected to speaking in tongues that we miss why they were given in the first place. Tongues were given so that after Pentecost, the nations in these regions would have the exalted Christ proclaimed to them the fulfillment of uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. 
So it's not necessary for Pentecost to be repeatable because the objective event that is being proclaimed has already happened. Okay. Part of the objective event is that, I put it this way, um, the door to the Gentiles was kicked open by Christ. That's, that's Pentecost. He kicks the door open. Um, the, the boot print left on the door is what we experience, sort of the residual effects of, of Pentecost. The event and the effects of the event are not the same thing. The event is one time and unrepeatable. The effects of it, the, the gospel is going to the nations, is what we experience. That's why we proclaim the gospel. That's why the, uh, uh, the, the Pendletons and just looking abroad are looking to go overseas to proclaim the gospel to these unreached people groups. Right? So this is the residual effect of Pentecost, but it's not Pentecost itself. And you shouldn't look for Pentecost itself to happen again. The exaltation of Christ, um, again, is the, the boot that kicks the door open. Its mark remains, but Pentecost is, is done in, in that sense. Now, I started the class by saying this, and I'll say it again. Just like Christ offering himself on the cross as a payment for sin was not a repeatable event, Pentecost did not need to be a repeatable event. Granted, it changed things forever, but, and, and there are implications for today, but the effects of Pentecost, or the Pentecost event, are not the same as the Pentecost event itself, okay? So we have to maintain that, that distinction. I know I'm at this point probably beating a dead horse, but I hope that it's clear to you um, why we are not looking for any present day Pentecost to happen. Um, we can talk about tongues and what that is, and maybe that's for another class or part of another class. But um, let me just hear from you guys. Any questions, any thoughts? Anything come to your mind? Any of the scriptures come to your mind as we think about Pentecost? Arnie? Oh, okay. Well, I was just going to ask about um, Acts 8 and Acts 19. Um, those are the two passages where it seems like people accepted Christ, and then later they received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. Yep. Yeah, so I would um, put it in this way. So I think what you said is exactly right. And I would add to that, that there is a generation in which the Pentecost event happened. And the residual of, it's not so much about um, necessarily the, the generation after 40 years or 50 years, but it's the breaking in of the gospel to the nations that happens in different places in the book of Acts that does have a sort of uh, residual effect. It is, it is, it's connected to Pentecost. It's not Pentecost, but connected to Pentecost. And it's the continuum of that, continuum of that proclamation. So you have Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth represented by Caesarea. And so that's sort of stage three fulfillment, right? So it's connected to one of those three stages. Um, and I do believe that the, uh, those miraculous, um, gifts, uh, you see uh, this, this raising of uh, dead, the, these miraculous types of healings, 
um, tongues even, I would say that they are connected to one of those three stages of what the Spirit is doing in the church as they exalt, as they proclaim the exalted Christ. But those things are, it's, it's happened. Uh, the residual effects of it are still happening today, but not as tied to those three stages. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, if, if that helps. So I would tie that, it's the, what, what's happening there, to stage three. Yeah. Yeah. So that I think that that's connected to um, Hebrews even, but the earth being seated, um, him waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool, which is happening now, even as um, those who were rebels against Christ joyfully, willfully bow the knee, happened uh, in a strategic, pointed way on uh, the cross when Jesus, of course, uh, redeemed the elect. Uh, Colossians says he transferred them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. So there is something specific happening in that um, that is, again, sort of residual. As, as believers, as unbelievers bend the knee, are saved and redeemed, uh, that's happening. But it's, ha- it's happened most highly, chiefly, and pointedly on the cross of Christ, where Satan was defeated. Arnie? <laughs> the spirit. <laughs> but, but maybe I, I'm just trying to affirm what I understand. Okay. <laughs> I love but you, Artie. Like <laughs> yeah, do it. Let's do it. Okay, I was, trying, I was sort of holding into the, uh, you mentioned, I think, two, two roles or works of the Holy Spirit the redemptive historical part. And yeah. The, Yeah. As we go. Yep. Well, yep. And we're running on the redemptive Right. This was 
very distinct. Yes, uh, yes, yep. Which is, uh, which I think is, you know, the, the witness of God, of Christ's resurrection is living, <clears throat> right? The apostles and disciples. Yep. Some. And then, so, the Pentecost kind of filled in the gap of bursting into the whole people. Right. Right? Yeah. Being therefore exalted in the right hand of God, resurrection and ascension, right? and having received from the Father and the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Yes, so, that's good. Yep. So, that's good. It's kind of paradigmatic. Yeah. So, this is very distinct part of that. And then you've got the Pouring the Holy Spirit into the life of the Right. Is that helpful? That was great. You just summarized the whole class. <laughs> I could have just let you come up here and say that. <laughs> that was good. That was helpful. Yep. Did, did everybody hear that? Was that helpful? That that summary? Any other thoughts? another thing that's easily overlooked um, that it is a just what you said it's a narrative of something that happened and we can there are some things in scripture that um, we ought to take as um, what's the word I'm thinking about um, yes that, that's it say it louder brother yes yes description versus prescription um, the scriptures at times describe something that happened, um, but it's not prescribing that that should be done by you, by us, or now, or even ever again. But it's describing something that happened. I think that's what's, what you see in, in, in Acts. Yeah, well said. Yeah, it'd be like, actually, it'd be like, okay, everyone bring their titles to their home board and their cars. Another good like, example. The believers had everything in common and yeah. It's just what happened at that time. It's right. a story. It's not what we should be doing right this time. Exactly. That would be a, yeah. Great example. Yep. He's talking about an ax when um, Ananias and Sapphira, is that what you're thinking about? Uh, they, they call all believers to bring all their things together. They have everything in common. Um, they give as each has need, which we do through benevolence, right? Uh, but uh, they lied to the Holy Spirit, it says. Uh, Peter says, didn't I, didn't you say you sold this for this much money? You have lied, and then they drop dead. It's a, it's a terrifying thing. Um, but again, that's descriptive. That doesn't mean we need to all sell our houses or, or cars or possessions and bring them to the sanctuary and distribute them. There are some who, who misinterpret that and get the descriptive and prescriptive wrong, and uh, there are horrible consequences. But anyway... Another good example. We got about five minutes left. Any other thoughts? <clears throat> um, I guess this is kind of, I don't know if this is like a question or maybe just like Marnie, I'm trying to see if I'm going to <laughs> but, uh, but 
But yeah, I mean, I'm thinking it, it's also encouraging because unlike in Acts 8 or Acts 19, it's not like today someone could believe the gospel but not have the fullness of the Spirit. Right. At conversion, everyone receives the fullness of the Spirit. And right. that should be like, really encouraging to us. Like We don't have to seek a second blessing. Right. Um, like we, we may seek to be filled with the Spirit more as we fill our minds with the word um, and, and encourage, you know, we seek fillings, but we don't have to, like, seek this um, climactic second blessing. Yeah. And that should be, like, I think, really encouraging. Um, that, that encourages me, at least. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I love that, that, like, Acts 8 and Acts 19, like, if read um, prescriptively, like, that should make us kind of worried, like, oh, man, have I had my... Uh, Acts 8, Acts 19 thing yet. Yeah. Um, but it's like, even if we're not speaking in tongues, that doesn't mean we don't have the fullness of the Spirit. Right, exactly. Yep. And I talked about that a bit, how assuming that that is to be every Christian's experience can um, really uh, harm one's conscience. And you can be striving to make sure you have this experience of speaking in tongues. I've, I've been there. And when it doesn't happen, you walk away like, you know, you come to a, a tongue service, you don't speak in tongues and you walk away like, well, I'm a lesser Christian. The guy next to me did it. He must really love the Lord. Um, and we've all seen those abuses, but um, that's, that's not how we should interpret Acts. Yep. All right. Any closing thoughts? I hope this was helpful a little bit. Um, and if it's not all clear, continue to read. Uh, pick up Ferguson's book. Um, if, if you don't have it, it's, it's really helpful. There are a lot of other good books as well. Um, anyway, but yeah, Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit is really good. Um, I know Kyle is using a little bit of Bob Inc., which has been helpful. Um, this book, uh, The Mystery of Christ, Maximus the Confessor, is also really helpful. Um, so there are a lot of good resources out there, but primarily we're using Sinclair's book, and I think he's on the right track. Um, so, all right. Let me pray for us and we'll close out, all right? Lord, we are in desperate need of um, your wisdom. Lord, give to us the wisdom that we lack. Give to us the um, sanctification that we lack. Uh, I pray that the scriptures would uh, deepen our love for our triune God, would sharpen our theology, our doctrine, not just to have head knowledge, but to tie what we use our minds to do in theology with what our hearts ought to do in response to that theology, which is worship, which is devotion. Um, thank you, Lord, for um, your word. Uh, thank you for this, the narrative that we even have in the scriptures. You haven't left your church without witness and without the interpretation of these things by the witness of other scriptures. Uh, Lord, inform us, teach us, grow us in the love for yourself, grow us in Christian maturity, and bless us this Lord's day. Um, in Christ's name, amen. Well, thank you. You are dismissed.